Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. It's Carol from England, who takes LDM for multiple sclerosis. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Could you tell me when you were diagnosed with MS? Um, about 20 years ago. Oh, you've had it quite a while. How old were you? In my 40s. I was about 45. Right. And what symptoms were you experiencing at that time which led to your diagnosis? Well, I, I went, I was very, very fit and I went up to the shop one day and my legs just gave way. Uh, I went back home and phoned the doctor. My leg stuck out, it would go up, but it wouldn't go down. And two years later, it told me it was MS. Right. So how did that impact on your life, Carol? A lot, a lot, because I was very, very fit. Uh, I used to help my husband with uh, his boys and girls club. We used to go fell walking, camping, swimming, very, very fit. I used to even, we used to even take children abroad on activity holidays. And all of a sudden, that stopped, you know, I couldn't walk properly. Oh, dear. So it had a Im- big impact on your life then, didn't it? It did, very yes. big. And how did that affect you psychologically? Um, I just realised that I couldn't do... I felt that it was God telling me it was time to rest. <laughs> right. So before you found LDN, how had your MS progressed? It was uh, going downhill, um... I was very, I was weakening. Uh, I couldn't walk properly. Uh, the biggest thing was I was getting very weak and getting very depressed. That mm-hmm. was the biggest things. And jump, my legs were jumping a lot. Did you have any problems with your bladder? Uh, now and again. <laughs> and what, what about fatigue? Was fatigue a problem? Uh, fatigue was the biggest one of the, the weakness. I was just so weak. Mm-hmm. That's that was about the biggest thing. I was just so weak. And how did you hear about LDN? I was at the hairdressers and I read a magazine and it was mentioned in the magazine. A lady had been using it mm-hmm. and she could now bother with her grandchildren and that's when I wanted to... <laughs> that was my story, Carol. I don't know <laughs> whether you know that. No. Yeah, it was me. Um, and a picture of my little grandson, which was quite nice. Um, how did you go about getting a prescription? My husband went on his computer and it was all done through then and through Glasgow and that was it. Mm-hmm. We just ordered it and that was soon it came. And how long have you been taking LDN now? Uh, about four or five years. Okay. And how has it helped your condition? 
um, my legs don't jump. I'm not as weak as I was. Uh, I've got a lot more positive attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. I am in a wheelchair when I'm out, and I push a zimmer when I'm in. Um, we have a big house, so I've got a stair lift. Um, just thankful that the children and my husband didn't get it. Um, and, yeah, I'm a lot more positive about it. Mm-hmm. Will you continue to take LDN? Oh, yes. And what would you say to other people with MS who are contemplating trying LDN? Try it. It's worth doing, yes. It, if nothing else, it takes a weakness away and a jump in. Mm-hmm. And are, are you able to join in more now, Carol? No, I can't do anything. Uh, I've got preaching. Um, I can't do anything in the house because of the weakness and because of um, not walking very far, weakness in my hands. I do write letters to people Mm-hmm. Elderly people, people that can't write back, uh, and I go preaching every now and again. But I can't read very much, uh, much about it. Well, it sounds as though you're still having a productive life, though, doesn't it? You know. Oh yes, yeah. I'm very, very um, sure that yeah, it's better me than the family. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Right. It did affect my family when I first got it. Uh, I have twins, and they were away from home. But I have a middle daughter who was taking exams, and she couldn't stop crying. It, it really hit her. Uh, they had to keep sending her home from school. And then I have triplets, and they were too young really to act. They are just starting to understand it a bit better now. My goodness. You've, you've got quite a large family with twins. Oh, well, we had, foster, we had foster children as well, and I was oh, bothered that goodness. they were going to be taken away. Yeah. But no, we were able to keep them. Oh, lovely. Oh, thank you very much, Carol. I'd like to introduce Crystal from the United States, who takes LDN for MS. Thank you for joining me, Crystal. Thank you, Linda. Could you tell me when you first started to experience your MS symptoms? Um, I would say, um, now that I look back, I wonder if some of the strange symptoms I had during my last two or three pregnancies was really Mm -hmm. MS-related. I would get... um, tingling and numbness in my fingers and visual disturbances like blurry vision or spots in my vision. Um, And we would just wonder, what in the world is going on? And I I asked my OB about it, and they just kind of dismissed it as maybe baby's on a nerve or something like that. Um, And nobody ever thought anything of it, and I didn't have it after pregnancy. So I don't know if that was related or not, but um, it's hard to remember the specifics of everything because because of the fact that we just kind of blew it off 
but then um, I can remember weird things um, a couple of years later um, after my last pregnancy, um, just maybe a year afterwards. I can remember some weird things like waking up biting my tongue because it was kind of like loose or hanging off to the side. Um, and then shortly after this, this was um, just just before my insomnia started, I would have insomnia. Um, and I would have restless leg syndrome in my arms and my skin would crawl and itch. All of this would make me feel really crazy, and I started having double vision after this and dizziness when I stood up or just got up too fast. Mm -hmm. Um, This this was right before um, I had my major symptom. Um, my, My primary care sent me to an ophthalmologist for the double vision who said my eyes and optic nerve looked just fine. So everybody was baffled why I would be having double vision. And then shortly after this is when I woke up one morning with a numb mouth on the right side. My lips and my tongue were numb and tingly. I was also having headaches at the same time. Um, So I had an MRI scheduled because of the headaches that just persisted even taking you know, major medication like narcotics and stuff did not help these headaches. So when I woke up with numbness one morning, my husband said, that does not seem right. You need to go into the doctor. And my husband is not the type to recommend going into the doctor. You know how men are. (laughs) (laughs) So when he said that I should go into the doctor, I really took that serious. It must have sounded serious to him. So I went in. And um, I saw a doctor that wasn't my primary care because she was out that day or something. And they tested my sensations, um, like with Q-tips and stuff, um, to see if I could actually feel the Q-tip being Mm -hmm. touched, my tongue and my, you know, different parts of my face. And I could still feel the sensation of the Q-tip there even though I was numb and tingly. So it wasn't that all feeling was gone. Um, But we just kind of eventually, um, after discussing things, we concluded it may have something to do with my um, usual nighttime teeth clenching. I was told to follow up in a couple of days, which I did, but I still had the numbness. So when my doctor, um, the doctor that oversaw my primary, Um, she didn't feel comfortable waiting for my scheduled MRI, the one that was set up because of my headaches. Um, she, she said, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to send you down to the ER right now for an emergency ER or MRI. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what happened. I went down right away and, um, at that time the results were read by the ER doctors and radiologists that night I was very tired (laughs) because you know it was I had to wait quite a while to get the MRI and then for them to read it and um, the ER doctors and radiologists looked at the MRI and they all thought it looked most like MS 
And then um, later on, when I finally got an appointment with a neurologist, I don't know how it is there in in England, but it takes a long time to get an appointment with a neurologist. And when I did finally see him, he did confirm an MS diagnosis. Um, so I never did go on a disease-modifying therapy because an older lady from my church had read about LDN, and I knew that the disease-modifying therapies were kind of toxic. And she told me about LDN, and I asked for it immediately from my neurologist. And fortunately, he was the type of neurologist to go ahead and prescribe that for me, even though they did encourage me to start the um, the DMT because uh, they said prognosis for people is much better the earlier you start. Um, but as far as I can tell, because I don't have much to base things on because I only had that first attack really, um, I can't tell you how much of a difference LDN made in my, you know, in my disease, but I do know it helped with insomnia, and I've been feeling um, pretty good for having MS. <laughs> my pastor is actually, when I talked to him the other day, he, he said, I'm very thankful and um, impressed with how well you've been doing because sometimes with MS, you quickly, once you start going downhill, it's quick. It's like going off a cliff. And I haven't had that battle so far. And maybe it's due to the LDN that I haven't gotten any worse. I know that LDN has helped me tremendously with insomnia. I don't have that anymore. I don't have the itching and crawling of the skin um, or the restless arms. So, so far, it seems that LDN has done the job <laughs> and I do plan on going on Copaxone um, just because I don't want to I want to take measures to prevent further damage um, which LDN hasn't yet clinically been proven to do but I will be taking the LDN at the same time because I know Copaxone and LDN are the only uh, Copaxone is the only one you can take with LDN so as long as I can I'm going to stay on the LDN Mm-hmm. And would you like to tell people what a regular day for you is like, Crystal? Sure. Um, like I said, right now um, I just have uh, pains. I haven't had much fatigue anymore. In the beginning, right after my diagnosis, I had tremendous amounts of fatigue. Um, I would um, hit a certain part in the morning and I would just have to lay down, and I'd, I'd tell my kids, you know, can you kids please just, um, you know, clean this room or that room? Um, and they would work together, and they'd kind of get a room cleaned up or whatever, and I'd go lay down because I was just so, so fatigued. Well, I don't have that anymore. And I've been on LDN now for six months, and I wonder if that fatigue that I used to experience isn't gone because I take LDN and get a good rest and also perhaps it's just helping with that symptom. Um, but now I just have um, intermittent bouts of pain, you know, in various places. Um, I just I, I can feel twinges of pain, 
they're fleeting. They come and go pretty quickly. Um, I don't have much muscle weakness or anything like that, which is good because um, I'm needing to to take care of my children, and um, and so it's good that I I don't have anything major right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So <laughs> as oh. far as I I have I do have um, visual disturbances sometimes when I get up. Um, too fast, I do feel like I'm going to get double vision, but I never actually get it. But on a daily basis, you have seven children, and how many do you homeschool, Crystal? I homeschool um, the oldest, the youngest three I don't homeschool, so um, the oldest four. Mm -hmm. So that is one busy (laughs) mum. So I think you're, you're doing extremely well. I mean, it would be um, a big job, I think, for a healthy person, let alone yeah. somebody with MS. Yeah. So, you you know, you are doing extremely well. Super mum. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I do have a lot of help. I have the homeschooling materials we use are very helpful. My young, um, my two younger ones that I homeschool, they have videos they watch and stuff. So it's tremendous help. We have a an outside teacher that <laughs> teaches them and you know I'm just there to help out and you know and they they do very well there I have some wonderfully smart kids <laughs> well thank you very much for sharing your story with us today we're joined by Cindy Kennedy from Massachusetts and Cindy runs um a website called living with lime she's um a very big advocate and she helps educate people. Thank you for joining us today, Cindy. Oh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So could you tell us your Lyme story, please? My Lyme story um, starts with, I'm not even sure, never met the tick who bit me, um, had no idea, had subtle symptoms until about 2011. And at that point, things just came crashing down. I was had debilitating fatigue. I had a sleep disorder. My level of anxiety was going through the roof. And then it just continued on um, being undiagnosed and searching for answers. And then I had joint swelling and flu symptoms and sore throat and mental status changes, getting, you know, confused about things that I shouldn't get confused about, uh, word find issues, headaches, bladder symptoms, heart palpitations. And uh, so that was the worst, you know, through 2011 to 2013 and 14. And it wasn't until the beginning of 2015 that I finally got to somebody who recognized that, you know, because it's not all of these other things, you know, and on paper, I looked pretty healthy, um, that it had to be an infection. And so started treatment, um, oral antibiotics, and then went to a Lyme specialist in New York and got treated with IV antibiotics and, um, And at one point when I had a really severe allergic reaction, uh, 2016, I said, I I can't do antibiotics anymore. I need to look elsewhere. And at that point, 
I've been just managing um, by protecting my gut and helping my immune system fight this, doing some herbal support and trying to lower my lower my stress level and help my body detoxify. So that's where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And what's been the protocol since you stopped the antibiotics to fight the, the Lyme and the co-infections? Well, I luckily was treated for Babesia, um, and that really kind of settled that, and that made a, a, a big turning point for me uh, back in 2000, I don't know what, that would have been 16, no, 15. Um, but right now, I've tried uh, general supplements, and right now, I am working on a protocol from a company who produces biocedin. And that has a number of proprietary ingredients in it, a lot of uh, herbal support, um, plant-based. And I'm, try- I'm hoping that that will give me enough edge that it will break through. I'm also working with uh, a general homeopath in the area who does a lot of muscle testing based on um, kind of acupuncture points to determine either deficiencies or certain areas of the body that when found to be weakened are associated with uh, different issues. So, and his products are very much homeopathic. Mm -hmm. And do you take LDN? I did for uh, a period of time, and um, I had difficulty with the LDN because I couldn't sleep. We played around with lowering the dose or trying to take it in the morning instead of the evening, but because my sleep was so hindered and that was so critical for healing, I wasn't able to continue on with it. Um, I did try it on two separate occasions, and I had great results in terms of just general body pain. And um, I I wish that I had been able to continue on a longer um, protocol with it. But, again, it was the sleep, and I just Mm. couldn't deal with that part. I mean, there are some people with Lyme disease who take an ultra-low dose of LDN when they have things you know, like Lyme disease or fibromyalgia, well, even chronic fatigue. Right, right. And how low did you go? And unfortunately, um, the the first round was about three months, and or maybe even a little bit longer because it took a while to get up to the higher dose. And probably the second time through was maybe a couple of months. Okay. And you know, this is this is the problem. Yeah. People are not educated mm. enough. Well what I was trying to ask you, um, that I think you must have misunderstood, was you know, people with Lyme disease, as I say, front chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, usually start on an ultra low dose and don't increase the dose until 
their body has accepted it. So, for example, if your sleep is all over the place and you started at 0.001 and then wait until you can feel that, okay, I'm no worse than when I started, at least give yourself two weeks and then increase by another minuscule amount and just keep doing that. But never increase the dose if your symptoms are worse than when you started. Now, there are some people who find they have to stay on one milligram. If they go any higher, they don't feel as good. So I was just wondering if you, A, started low enough, and two, did you increase the dose too quickly? I mean, what dose did you get up to in the two months and three months that you tried it? Um, I'm trying to recall. But again, when I said that the providers are not educated enough, their their goal was to get me, as what they thought, to the beneficial dose, which may have been four mm. milligrams. Yes, I'm but trying the, to recall. Yes, but the beneficial but, dose is the dose that suits you best. There isn't a right. <laughs> Uh, so where uh, were where were you? Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> well, all I'm thinking is, you know, you help educate people on um, Lyme disease, and the the lectures that I've heard, and Lyme was a big topic at the LDN 2017 conference. Doctors are doing extremely well with Lyme, but as I say, it has to be tailored to the patient it has to be very very low increased very very slow and you don't have to go up to a higher dose and maybe even cindy we can persuade you to try again and do it very gradually and see if you know you can get the benefits from ldn my biggest problem right now is fatigue i'm fortunate enough that um, the, the joint issues have settled down. So in terms of a pain tolerance or a pain issue, that, that isn't quite my, my problem. If I could find something to keep my stamina and help my endurance and help me to exercise, that, that would be what I need. Yes, but that is what people say LDN does for them especially with chronic fatigue syndrome, that it gives them the energy. Instead of lying on the sofa all day, they can actually go back to work. Um, there's lots of interviews on our Vimeo channel that you can actually listen to of people saying how their chronic fatigue has gone with LDN. But it's something you can think about. I am... <laughs> It's entirely up to you. Definitely. It makes no difference to me whether you try it or not. But if you did it, in the right way, you know, start low, slow, and see how you mm -hmm. are. If you needed any help finding a doctor to help you with that, I'd be more than, than willing to do that. But can you just tell people about your website, how they can find you and contact you via your website for help and information? Absolutely. Um, our the website is www.livingwithlime.us. It is a, a little over three months old. Um, I ask people to subscribe to the website so they get 
current updates when there is a blog written or when we've released a new podcast. We have just released the 11th podcast, and um, I've had a really very good response from people. I've had people contact me because my email is listed on the webpage, and pointing people in the direction of help is always an issue because general population, general mainstream medicine, uh, very difficult to get primary cares, to look at this seriously. Uh, finding a Lyme literate doctor means you're waiting a long time. So we're trying to at least establish and help people by starting them on some form of an herbal protocol. Um, and then hoping that they can through the International Lyme and Associated Disease or LymeDisease.org find a provider that um, they can get in as soon as possible. But I'm really excited because it's a way for me, and I'm quoted all the time um, in life, I got a lemon, I got Lyme disease, so I'm making lemonade. And my lemonade provides me the ability to connect with a wide variety of people, people who are affected, have been infected, uh, people who are doing research on Lyme disease and trying to get people educated so that if there are symptoms, their friend, their family member themselves, they can actually go to their primary care doctor and say, no, this is what I think it is. And actually support their treatment by saying, you know what, this is what's in the database for treatment. It's not just a single dose or it's not just two weeks or three weeks. It's longer. And it depends on how someone feels. If I had gotten treated longer than 21 days, I told uh, the doctor I was seeing at that time, I'm 75% better. And his response is, well, I don't know. I don't know why. So if I had only had somebody who was literate in this field, it probably wouldn't be where I am today. And maybe I wouldn't have started my podcast and, and website. So I don't know. It's a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit hard to decide if it's good or bad, but I'm a nurse practitioner. I can decipher a lot of the information medically and, uh, and blog a little bit. I'm a little behind in that right now, but you know, there's great questions out there that people send to me and I hope to help as many people as I can. We've actually been listened to in 17 countries, um, albeit only one person in Japan, but still, mm -hmm. uh, it still counts as a country. Well, we, I don't know whether you know, but the LDN Research Trust made a Lyme doc disease documentary, um, and it was finished early this year. It's been edited and it's about to be released before Christmas. So I'll oh, send you the link to that. Wonderful. Um, some amazing, oh, amazing you? doctors. That would be great. Yes. Perhaps you can share it with your with your patients. That might be of interest. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll definitely put it out on my Facebook page and um, and Twitter. And then actually um, I can actually, uh, at some point when you have the ability to let me hear, uh, this podcast, then possibly I can take it and put it as a blog on my, on my website as yes, well. Yes, certainly we can do that. 
And thank you very much for joining us today, Cindy. It was a pleasure. Oh, Linda, it was really nice. It was very, very nice. And, you know, the more people that we educate, uh, the more people that can really advocate for themselves. And uh, I don't know, it's just a really rough time. It certainly is. Thank you very much. All right. You take care now. Claudia Christian, she's going to talk today about the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the Sinclair method for alcohol addiction. Um, and technically, I don't think this is considered low-dose naltrexone, but it's a use of naltrexone that is certainly innovative. It's, a, it's controversial, like every use of naltrexone, especially in this, in this uh, uh, genre, in this uh, audience. So, Claudia, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here again. You know how to use yeah. a microphone. I do know how to use a microphone. I've got the pre-lunch crowd, so everyone's half asleep, so this is great. Um, um, first of all, uh, I want to say that since Las Vegas, where everyone was looking at me thinking, what the heck is she doing here? I actually had people come up today and say that their patients are utilizing this method of treatment with great success. So that's, you were just speaking about uh, grassroots movements and so forth, and I think that's so important to actually just spread the word about these treatments that actually work. As he mentioned, um, I'm here to talk about the life-saving aspects of 25 to 100 milligrams of naltrexone tablets when utilized for alcohol use disorder in a treatment called pharmacological extinction, also known as the Sinclair method, after Dr. David Sinclair, who did all of the research, or TSM. TSM. So we'll make it easy and call it TSM. In June of 2013, I started the C3 Foundation to help spread awareness about the Sinclair Method. In the first year of operation, we directly helped more than 500 people. We have an international reach of more than a quarter million people. Our current projects include One Little Pill, which is a documentary film that I made to explain the science behind TSM, and also to show real-life people using this method. We're raising awareness by developing educational flyers and other material to help educate people about harmful drinking and bring hope for treatment and reduce stigma. Our long-term goals are to open up clinics for low-income, homeless, and for veteran veterans, and to obtain government grant funding to work with international teams of doctors and research scientists so we can really explore the root causes of alcohol use disorder and learn to break the intergenerational cycle of addiction so we can work toward an alcohol addiction-free generation. We would also, and I'm sure much of you, many of you would like this as well, we'd love to see it as an over-the-counter drug and made available like it is in countries like Czechoslovakia and Spain. To give you an idea of why I'm here today and a little bit of background, I've been an actress for over 30 years in the entertainment industry in film and television. I was a light drinker in my 20s and I became a sort of social drinker in my, in my 30s. In my late 30s, early 40s, I developed AUD. It was an incredibly confusing thing to happen to somebody who admittedly likes to be in control because I definitely was not in control of this at all. In fact, I was swept up in a nearly decade-long battle with something I refer to as the monster. And addiction really is a monster, and it will hit anybody, regardless of social class, sex, age. It doesn't matter if you're the most disciplined person in the world. Once addiction gets you, it is 100% in control of you. 
If I had had a normal disease, normal, I probably would have received sympathy and compassion. compassion. But instead, I was faced with a barrage of just say no. Why can't you stop? And a complete lack of compassion, understanding, anything. In my late 30s, when I realized, re finally realized that I definitely was not in the driver's seat, I sought out every single treatment I could afford or find. I did uh, expensive rehab. I think it was $30,000 to basically drink wheatgrass and do equine therapy. I had psychiatrists at $400 an hour. I hired a hypnotherapist who had claimed to treat a member of the Grateful Dead. That was 600 bucks. I had two and a half years of intense psychotherapy. Um, um, I had uh, vitamin therapy. I became a macrobiotic. I went to AA in 12 different meetings in two different countries. I literally did everything, and I prayed until my knees were black and blue, and I kept relapsing. Here's the thing. I wasn't drinking because I was suffering from any great traumatic event. I had a beautiful home, a great career that I loved. I had friends. I had family who supported me and loved me. I was drinking because I was physically addicted to alcohol. I have it in my genes. Call it the Irish curse. It's on both sides of my family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> the combination of a genetic predisposition and engaging in the activity, which for me was drinking, can make you an addict. And I knew one thing for sure, that doing Tai Chi in some swanky beachfront resort was not going to fix the biological addiction. Most medical students receive only about an hour of addiction training. And even psychiatry schools require only a few hours of training on addictions. This is ridiculous, considering that one person dies every 10 seconds from AUD. That is 3.3 million people a year. 90% of people suffering from alcohol use disorder do not seek treatment. And nearly half of those people don't seek treatment because they've been falsely led to believe that they need to give up alcohol for the rest of their lives which to a 20 or 30 year old can be utterly daunting, not to mention completely unrealistic. The 10% of those people who do actually seek treatment, whether in AA or an expensive rehab facility, are relapsing at the rate of 90% in the first four years of treatment. I struggled for nearly a decade and I would manage to stay sober for anywhere from a month to 11 months. I never quite got my one year chip. Many people with alcohol use disorder fight with treatment much longer. So why do people believe that a long-term battle with alcohol can be simply stopped in 30 days or less with nothing but willpower and talk therapy? My worst bad day, or my hitting rock bottom, as they like to say, was in 2009. I had six months of sobriety. I had a spectacular relapse. I binged, and I went cold turkey like I always did. Just detoxed. This time something went really wrong and I started to basically go into seizure. I lost control of my body. So let me stop for a moment here and explain how this would be completely different with naltrexone. The way TSM works is you take a naltrexone, you wait an hour, wait an hour 
And this is important because it needs to get into your bloodstream and brain. After an hour, you drink alcohol. Yes, it's counterintuitive as all heck, but it is completely necessary. You must drink alcohol. Instead of the alcohol reinforcing the addictive synapses in your brain, the naltrexone blocks the endorphins and keeps them from activating the part of the brain responsible for addiction. Gradually, over the course of days for some people, months for others, your body is detoxed and your drinking levels dramatically decline. Unfortunately for me back then, I had no idea what naltrexone was, but I did know that I would die if I didn't seek professional treatment. So I had, so I had a friend take me to one of these detox centers. They treated me so shabbily until they had my insurance information in hand and the $3,000 paid up. In fact, the entire experience was so degrading and humiliating that the second I got that little trazodone or whatever they gave me to stop shaking, I checked myself out and I left. On the way out, I happened to pick up a flyer for Vivitrol. I called that clinic about 150 times trying to set up an appointment to get a Vivitrol shot because I was so desperate and Vivitrol promised to stop the cravings. Ironically, they never called me back. Addiction is treated differently than any other disease, and this is wrong. Diabetics are not denied insulin even if they continue to eat sugary desserts. Those who have heart attacks are not shamed for being unable to avoid stress or for having high cholesterol. And lung cancer patients are not denied treatment because they smoked once upon a time or for decades. The point is this, I didn't ask this to happen to me, nor did the 140 million people worldwide who are physically addicted to alcohol. Addiction is stigmatized, it's moralized, and it's monetized. Our criminal justice system systematically mandates addiction treatment as a punishment for crimes, yet naltrexone, proven to be effective in more than 120 clinical studies worldwide, is often denied to those that need it the most. Thankfully, that clinic never returned my calls, so I had to do my own Google research, which I did. I found out that Vivitrol's main ingredient is naltrexone, an FDA-approved medication that's been available for treating AUD since 1994. It's safe, it's cheap, it's available if you have a doctor who knows about it. Unfortunately, I did not back then, so I ordered my naltrexone online from an Indian pharmacy. 50 milligrams of hope. I waited six weeks to get those pills while I white-knuckled through cravings and all the rest of the things that always happen when the alcohol deprivation effect sets in. Finally, I got that little packet of pills and I started TSM. I took the naltrexone, I waited an hour, I poured myself a glass of wine. It was a miracle. I just stared at the glass of wine and barely drank any of it. I had no compulsion, I had no desire, I was more interested in the stake that I had made to go along with it. Although I call it a miracle, I do come from a family of scientists and doctors and I do understand what learned behavior is and I get Pavlovian conditioning. I respect the human brain and all of its complexity. I do believe that we are, we are built with an eraser. I think that we can unlearn previously learned behaviors. TSM uses naltrexone to create 
pharmacological extinction. By extinguishing the craving for alcohol, the brain unlearns addiction. This is called targeted extinction. After a few months on naltrexone, only targeted using it, one hour prior to drinking, I didn't even think about drinking. Mostly I was sober except for the very occasional planned drink an hour after taking naltrexone. Life was normal again. Naltrexone is a non-addictive, declassified pharmaceutical with very few side effects. The Sinclair method has a staggering 78% long-term success rate. Naltrexone's also been shown to be as effective without counseling as with. So people who do not have the desire or the ability to pay for expensive talk therapy sessions have the same opportunity to beat addiction as those who want or need counseling. TSM reduces treatment barriers. It's less expensive than detox and rehab facilities. Oral naltrexone is far less expensive than Vivitrol as well. And naltrexone can be taken discreetly without forced abstinence or lifelong psychological labels. In Finland, it saved nearly 100,000 people and was the go-to treatment for alcoholism. The rate of addiction is not going down. It is climbing. So why not embrace a safe, affordable treatment that could save millions of lives? The US medical community has been entrenched in an abstinence-based, moral, and spiritual judgment method of treating AUD for more than 75 years. And unfortunately, as we all know, many physicians defer to pharmaceutical company pressure when it comes to treating patients with medication. So naltrexone's status as a generic drug means that there's no one trying to monetize it. Therefore, there's no big pharma company behind us to propel naltrexone to a status of a Viagra or a Shantex. There is some good news. news. Naltrexone's been in the news a lot more frequently over the past few years, and this has been thanks to peer-reviewed studies such as the meta-analysis in JAMA, which analyzed data from more than 120 studies, including the 2006 combined study, and the comparative review of FDA-approved and off-label medications published in current psychology. Unfortunately, much of this press has been spurred by the 32% annual increase in alcohol-related injuries and illnesses reported by the World Health Organization. Oral naltrexone is also at risk to fall deeper into generic obscurity for alcohol treatment. In the UK, the NHS and NICE have approved a similar drug, Nalmafine, which they market, they market as Selincro, and it's got the power of Lundbeck behind it. The good thing for us at C3 is that the way nalmaphene is labeled in the UK and Europe makes it compatible for use with the Sinclair method. In the US, naltrexone still is labeled with a do not drink on this medication statement that flies completely against all of the research in clinical trials. It's simply incorrect. And you wonder why doctors are confused. Nearly seven years after finding naltrexone, I still wonder why no one told me about the Sinclair method. I was in hospitals. I was in detox facilities. I went to psychiatrists, psychotherapists. How come nobody knew about this life-saving treatment? It had been improved for 15 years by the time I find out about it. In the past year, TSM was featured in the Daily Beast and in the Atlantic in articles written by Gabriel Glazer, who's been one of our biggest cheerleaders. She's a New York journalist. We were also in The Fix, 
And our documentary, One Little Pill, was aired on YLE, which is one of the biggest TV stations in uh, Finland. It also won the Film for Change Award at the Albuquerque Film Festival. We recently began a physician outreach program to identify every single doctor in the United States who prescribes naltrexone. This way, we can reach out to them with an educational packet on TSM. And so far, we've identified 20% of these doctors with our wonderful volunteer team. We raised funds by crowdfunding, and even my partner, Jenny, who's back there, repelled off of a building to raise money for C3, anything to raise awareness of this life-saving treatment. TSM works wonders for alcohol-dependent people. Trust me, it works for not only me, but hundreds and hundreds of people that I've directly put on it. It's, it's, uh, it has a staggeringly high success rate. It's my dream to see it become the go-to method for treating people with AUD. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.